Today, the pillars of a guardian's education, music, gym, and ideology. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good In Theory. So far, Socrates and the boys have built this imaginary city, and they decided it needed an army to protect it against external threats and to keep order within. But the trouble with training a group of men for violence is that how do you keep them from using their power on the people they're supposed to protect? Well, one answer is education. You train them to be good. And that's why, last episode, Socrates and Adamantus went through Greek poetry and mythology, and they took out everything that might have a bad influence on the young guardians. But censoring Homer it turns out, is not really enough to guarantee a virtuous military class. So in this episode, Glaucon is going to jump in, and he and Socrates are going to continue to develop this idea of educating good citizens. There are three different bits of dialogue. In the first part, Socrates and Glaucon are going to continue purging other aspects of the Guardian's lives, aside from poetry. They're going to talk about dieting and phys ed and dating and music. And they're also going to discuss the overall method and aims of the education program for the Guardians. So this will take us from when the Guardians are little kids to almost when they're ready to go and start defending the city. The second piece of dialogue is a bit of an aside, and it deals with ideology. In this part, Socrates is going to explain the noble eye, which is this ideological origin myth that he wants to teach all of the citizens to make them more obedient and patriotic. And then we'll have a third and final part of dialogue, which is quite short and briefly sketches the kind of lifestyle the Guardians are going to have when they're finished their official education and ready to go start their jobs defending the city. As usual, Socrates is going to push all of his ideas further than most people would be comfortable with. Now, before we start the first part, I want to give a little bit of preparation because it's a long bit of dialogue and in it, Socrates is going to explain that the aim of education is to shape the souls of the guardians. Now, the word soul is an abstract one, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So when Socrates starts talking about souls and spirit, it may not be immediately obvious what he means. Now, Socrates' theory of the soul is fairly complex, and he's going to be explaining it bit by bit throughout the Republic. But I still think it's worth saying something about how an ancient reader who hadn't yet read Plato would have understood the word soul because it may be different than how you or I understand it. So first, the Greeks understood the soul as the animating force of all living things. It's the things that living things have that they lose when they die. So humans have souls, animals have souls, even plants have souls. But we're interested in humans. And when it comes to human souls, the soul is responsible for all our psychological functions like perception, reason, desire, emotion, all that stuff that's going on in your head and heart and gut, that's your soul. Therefore, soul is also where virtue is. If you're a just person, if you're moderate and courageous, these are all properties of your soul. 
And this association with character in psychology should be easy to remember because the Greek word for soul is psyche, as in psychology. Now, like I said, Socrates is going to explain this theory throughout the book. But just to warn you, in this chapter, he's going to be talking specifically about the spirited part of the soul, which is trained by gymnastic, and the philosophical part of the soul, which is trained by music. So don't get spirit confused with soul. It's a different thing. Okay, let's get back to the dialogue. Adamantus and Socrates have just finished their discussion of poetry, and now Socrates is going to turn to music, and Glaucon is going to jump back in the conversation. Given what we've said about poetry, I guess it's obvious what we're going to say about music. I wouldn't say obvious, Socrates. What do you mean? Oh good, Glaucon, you can help with this. You're musical. We want our guardians to have good, orderly souls. And that's why we chose poetry that would follow from that. And now we just need to choose music that's going to match the poetry. Of course, I get it. Well, do you think they'll need sad songs that are good for crying and lamenting? Pah, no. What about music for drinking and partying? Mm, I'm afraid not, Guardians. And what about music for just laying around relaxing? Nope. Well, what kind of songs will they need, Glaucon? They're soldiers, so they'll need songs for war. Good point. And let's give them one more kind of song for any other activities that they might need to do. Like listening patiently, or calmly giving advice, or praying. If they're only going to need these two types of songs, which musical instruments do you think they'll need Glaucon? Do you think they're going to need harps and flutes and lutes? I don't think so, Socrates. If we only have two musical modes, we could probably make do with the lyre and the katara. Just those two? Well, look at that, Glaucon. We've purged the city that we were just saying was too luxurious. Yes, we have. I guess that's because we're such moderate men. Then why don't we keep purging and see just how moderate we can be? Music isn't the only thing that can be beautiful and harmonious. Paintings can be like that. And embroidery and architecture and furniture and even living things. Are you about to say what I think you're about to say? I don't think poetry and music are enough. We have to supervise all the arts. Ah, he said it! Yes, and I said it because art and music are the most powerful parts of education. They reach into the deepest areas of the children's psyches. We want our guardians to grow up completely surrounded by beautiful things. And that way, before they're even capable of rational thought, we can start shaping their tastes and their likes and dislikes. And when they grow up, they'll just be naturally drawn to all the right things, like beautiful speech and thought and good souls. I agree completely, Socrates. But what does that look like? What kind of houses and furniture resemble the good soul? I don't know, Glaucon. It's hard to say at this point. We don't even know what the good soul is yet, so we have to figure that out before we decide everything else. But there is 
something else that we should talk about before we end our discussion of music and education. What's that? Love, Glaucon. I'm listening. Imagine a person with all the best virtues of the soul who had a body to match. Wouldn't that be the most beautiful thing we could lay eyes on? What could be better? And isn't the most beautiful thing the most lovable? Of course. Does that mean, Glaucon, that a man who's musical and well-educated would only fall in love with this kind of person and would reject anyone whose body and soul don't match? Mm, I, I, I don't think so, Socrates. If there was something wrong with a person's soul, then yes, a good man won't love them. But if a person has a beautiful soul and happens to have some physical defects, I think he'd be patient and love him anyway. Really, Glaucon? Ah, yes, I remember. You had a boy like that, didn't you? I grant your point. But now, I want to know what you think about sex. Can you think of any greater or sharper pleasure? No way. There's nothing that can drive a man more insane. Indeed, Glaucon. And does being driven insane have anything to do with moderation? Exactly the opposite, I'd say. Then that means that good lovers can't have anything to do with sex, can they? No, I guess they can't. So, in our city, shall we say that a lover can kiss and touch his boyfriend, but only like a father does and only if the boy consents? And if people think that they're going any further, they'll get a bad reputation? Make it a law. Good. Now that we've talked about music and love, we need to decide on physical education. Our guardians need to be able to endure all the changing conditions and hardships of war. Absolutely. So then can we let them get drunk and have big banquets with pastries and Corinthian girls? I'm afraid not, Socrates. All of those things would be bad for the guardians. Then it looks like gymnastic is just like music. It's best to keep it simple. And when you start getting fancy, you're asking for trouble because people start losing their sense of moderation. And soon enough, half of your city is doctors and law courts. What? What do you mean? Well, if you have a well-educated and musical soul, then you probably won't be bickering with your neighbors to the point that you wind up in court, am I right? I suppose not. And it's the same thing with gymnastic. If you have a simple diet and a healthy lifestyle, you're not going to need a team of doctors just to keep you alive. I guess not. And that's because, except in emergencies, a good physical education will make you independent of medicine. And a good musical education will make you independent of the law. For sure. You know, Glaucon, most people are wrong about the whole purpose of music and gymnastic. They think that gymnastic is about educating the body and music is for educating the soul. But when you think about it, they're actually both for educating the soul. I mean, what happens to guys who spend all their time in the gymnasium and never consult with the muse? They're ignorant meatheads. Exactly. On the other hand, men who spend all their time listening to music and never do any physical training, they wind up being... Faint-hearted soft boys. Yes. It's like the sound of the flute has melted their spirit. Well, I think that gymnastic isn't really there to build physical strength. It's there to awaken the spirited part of the soul. And if you train it properly, the spirit should become strong and courageous. In music, music trains the philosophical part of the soul to be gentle and well-behaved. 
and the God gave us these two arts so we can tune souls to keep them in harmony. Music softens souls that are too savage, and gymnastic can raise the spirit of souls that are too cowardly. And the rulers of our city should have a perfect, harmonious balance of spirit and philosophy in their souls. Yes, we need men like that more than anything else. At this point, we're ready to talk about the content, method, and overall aim of the Guardian's education. As for content, it's just like with poetry. Socrates and Glaucon have a lot more to say about what needs to be purged from gymnastic and music than about what needs to go in. For example, no party music, no boozing, no sex, no pastries. If you dig deeper into the text, you'll find they're not supposed to eat boiled meats, only roasted meat. And... As with the purge of poetry, they seem to be getting rid of things that satisfy sensuous appetites or indulge certain emotions like mourning and lamenting. Another way of thinking of it, as I usually say it, is they're taking out all the juicy bits, and they do it for every aspect of the citizens' lives. And that brings us to the method of education that they're creating. Guardian education is not about formal classroom lessons. Socrates and Glaucon are proposing to control every aspect of the Guardian's world so it becomes a completely immersive 360-degree learning environment in which everything that the little Guardians encounter is designed to guide them towards virtue. The houses they live in, the curtains, the poetry, the pottery, whatever. They make the whole world into a kind of ideology tank, and the aim isn't to teach guardians a set of facts or lessons. They want to reach into their subconscious before they're even capable of rational thought and shape their tastes, their likes, their dislikes. And the idea is that when they grow up, that means they'll just be automatically attracted to the right things, like thought and argument and reason and virtuous human souls. Now, personally, I find all of this a little puzzling because... I can't really imagine what kind of architecture or lampshades will make me attracted to virtuous human souls when I grow up, but this does seem to be what Socrates is trying for. Now, this whole immersive education proposal may sound creepy and way too ambitious, but it is true that children don't just learn from explicit lessons they get at school. There's more to education than poetry. And real-life parents do use pretty much every aspect of the Socratic program, just not all together all the time. For example, parents fight to control their kids' diets. There are movie rating systems and parental advisory stickers for music. And toy makers usually genitally mutilate all of their dolls and action figures, presumably so they don't have an unwholesome influence on the children who buy them. Parents even try to use music to shape the soul. Back in the early 90s, there was this idea that went viral that listening to Mozart could make children smarter. So women started playing Mozart to their baby bumps, and politicians like the governor of Georgia started trying to set aside money to send Mozart CDs to every newborn baby who was born in the state. And there were even Italian farmers who started advertising that they were playing Mozart to their cows to make them produce better milk. 
I'm not kidding about this stuff. I'll put a reference in the show notes. So Socrates' ideas, they're not that weird in themselves. People try them. But he's just taking ideas that have occurred to a lot of parents, and he's applying them more consistently than even the most helicopter of parents would be willing to do. And doing that exposes the latent weirdness in the ideas. This is classic Socratic technique. You take an idea that makes sense to people, and then you just follow it until the same people that it makes sense to start to get uncomfortable. In summary, the content of the education is to take out all the juicy bits, the sex and the sauce and the pastries. And the method of education is immersion in a completely controlled social and physical environment. And now I want to talk about the overall aim of the education. Because I think the aim of the Socratic education offers an interesting contrast to how people think about education today. Because today, when I hear people talk about education, politicians and parents and so forth, I hear stuff like skills and job market and STEM, the three R's. And these are all built around a very practical, utilitarian, instrumental idea of education. Our education is there to teach us how to actually do things. And Socrates, he's not interested at all in that kind of thing. Remember, he is training an army, and he hasn't talked about spear class even once. No, Socrates is interested in moral education. He's all about shaping the souls, or the characters, of the guardians. And in particular, he mentions two parts of the soul, the spirited part and the philosophical part. When you hear spirit, or spirited part of the soul, this translates a Greek word, thumos. Thumos is a complex concept. It brings together a lot of different psychological ideas that we're not necessarily used to seeing together. And we're going to talk about it a lot more in coming episodes. But for now, Socrates is saying that this is the part of the soul that makes people courageous. It makes them brave in the face of danger. So if you've ever heard a saying like, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog, the fight in the dog is spirit. And this is the part of the soul that gymnastic is supposed to train. This is similar to the idea that playing sports can help teach kids about teamwork and discipline and courage and things like that. In the same way, every sports movie and TV show is actually about spiritual growth rather than physical competition, right? When you watch a training montage, it's as much about the hardening of the spirit as it is about the hardening of the body. So for Socrates, gymnastic is about character, not physique. And similarly, music class isn't about learning to play the flute. It's about developing the philosophical part of the soul. We don't know much about the philosophical part of the soul yet, but it has to do with loving reason and argument and speech, and also with being gentle with your fellow citizens. So proper musical training is supposed to help with that. In summary, to picture the point of the Socratic education, picture three sliders that control different parts of the guardian souls. The gym slider turns up spirit. The music slider increases philosophy. And the censorship and other restrictions are supposed to turn down the part of the soul that likes to party and drink and fuck. And the ultimate aim is to create guardians who watch over the citizens of the city like nice sheepdogs and don't feed on them like wolves.
By now, Socrates and the boys have decided on the rough guidelines of an education system. And in the next section of dialogue, two big things are going to happen. Glaucon and Socrates are going to decide who to pick to rule the city out of the big pool of soldiers that they've trained. And then Socrates is going to tell all of the citizens the noble lie. Now, the noble lie is one of the more famous concepts in Plato, and it's an ideological origin myth that's supposed to help the citizens of the city understand their place in the world and make them more obedient and patriotic. It's called the noble lie usually, but the Greek is ambiguous. It could also be translated as the great lie or grand lie or huge lie because it's a lie that's noble in provenance, but also is very large in scale. Now that we've sorted out education, we just have to pick the best of our students to rule the city. What do you mean by best? The best guardians are the ones who are most guardian-like. They should be wise and powerful. And above all, they should be completely devoted to the city. We want men who truly believe that their own success and failure in life depends entirely on success and failure of the city. We want people who never forget what we taught them. Why would they forget? People change their minds all the time. Sometimes it's because of fear or grief or pain. Sometimes pleasure can make people change their minds just like magic. But we want guardians who will keep their musical education no matter what, so we'll test them. We'll put them through painful trials. We'll tempt them and try to persuade them throughout their whole lives. And the ones who we can never lead astray, they pass. We'll honor them and we'll make them rulers of the city. And we'll reject anyone who fails. Of course. Just to clarify, earlier we were calling all of the soldiers guardians. But it's actually only the rulers who are the true guardians. We'll call all the other younger soldiers auxiliaries from now on. Sound good? Sure. Good. And do you think it would help to use one of those useful lies we were talking about earlier? I'm thinking of one giant lie that could persuade everyone in the city, even the rulers, and if not the rulers, at least everyone else. What kind of lie do you have in mind? Nothing that hasn't been done before. Something like the Phoenician story, the kind of thing that the poets talk about happening in the past. Although, I'm not even sure if this kind of thing is possible. It would take a lot of persuading. Why are you being so cagey, Socrates? You'd understand if you knew what I was going to say. Then say it! Okay. Here it goes. I want to persuade everyone in the city that their whole rearing and education was just a dream. What? Yeah. And I'm going to tell them that the whole time that they thought they were growing up and being educated, they were actually asleep underground being built by the god along with their weapons and equipment. And now that they've been released from the earth... They're responsible for defending the country just like it was their own mother. And all the other citizens are their brothers because they were all born in the earth. (laughs) That is wild, Socrates. No wonder you were ashamed to tell us. I'm not finished. We're also going to tell them that the god who built them mixed metals in with their souls. Gold for the rulers, silver for the auxiliaries, and iron and bronze for the farmers and craftsmen. Gold for the best, bronze for the rest. Right. And occasionally, 
gold parents will give birth to a bronze child. And when that happens, they have to cast the child out where it belongs, among the farmers and the craftsmen. And if a golden child is born to bronze parents, they'll welcome it into the guardian class. And we'll have a prophecy in the city that if a bronze or iron man ever rules, the city will be destroyed. Now, Glaucon, can you think of any way we can get people to believe this? No way, Socrates! Nobody would ever believe that. Unless maybe their children or grandchildren might believe it? Well, Glaucon, even that might be enough. Let's not worry too much about this one. We'll just let tradition and popular belief and rumor take their course. When the musical and gymnastic education is done, Socrates and Glaucon have an entire army of guys trained as watchdogs for their fellow citizens. And now, they have to pick some selection of that army to rule the city. And who do they pick? They pick the people who are best in school, the people who took most to their education, and who don't change their beliefs no matter what they do to them. And this promotion creates three classes of people, so... You can picture the social structure of the city as a three-level pyramid. Guardians on the top as rulers. In the middle, you have all the soldiers, the auxiliaries. And at the bottom, there are the producers. They're the workers, the farmers, everyone else. And all of them are told the noble lie. The noble lie is a story that everyone's whole life was a dream and they were built underground with different metals alloyed to their souls And that all explains which class they belong to and why they should defend the city like it's their own mom. The noble lie gets a lot of attention. It's almost become a kind of catchphrase for Plato. And I think that the reason is just that the name of it feels scandalous and a bit paradoxical. Because we know lying is bad, but now Socrates is saying that lying is noble, it's spicy. And that's as far as people usually get. So if you ever read the phrase noble lie in a magazine article or if someone says it, they probably just mean lying to the people but for the greater good. Now, I think this is a superficial interpretation of the noble lie passage, and I want to spend a few minutes going beyond that. It is true that Socrates thinks it's okay to lie to the people. That's the very first thing he says to Adamantus when they start talking about education— All the myths and poems told to kids are lies in a way. But in my opinion, that's not what this passage about the noble lie is about. The noble lie is specifically about how political ideology works, about how stories like the noble lie are related to useful political sentiments. So one theory of how ideology works that's really common, but which Socrates does not believe, is what I call the idea's first theory of ideology. It works like this. You cook up some crazy story, and then you convince a whole bunch of people to believe it. It doesn't matter how you do it. Maybe you have to repeat it a bunch of times. Maybe you have to use flashy lights, incense, chanting, whatever. This is how brainwashing works in cartoons and comic books, and it's how a lot of atheists think that religion works. 
Basically, you're waving a shiny watch in front of someone's face until their eyes turn into spirals, and then you put beliefs in their head. And that's the key, because according to this theory, once you install the beliefs, you control the believers. You can manipulate them for politics and profit, whatever you want. Now, I call this the idea's first theory of ideology because you start with the ideas, you install them in people's brains, and then you can manipulate their emotions and actions. The discussion of the noble eye in the context of the whole musical education program shows us that this is not how Socrates thinks it works. Notice this about the noble eye discussion. First, the origin myth that Socrates tells is totally implausible. He's telling people their whole life was a dream, that they were born yesterday. This is unbelievable, and Glaucon confirms it's unbelievable when he says, nobody will believe this. But even though the story seems ludicrous, Socrates is also not at all worried about persuading the citizens. When Glaucon says no one will buy it, at least not for a couple of generations, Socrates is very casual about it. He just says, you know what, let's let popular belief and rumor and tradition take care of this one. It's as if Socrates thinks that convincing people of this crazy myth is just going to take care of itself. Why? Why is Socrates so relaxed about making people believe the unbelievable? It's because he has an idea's last theory of ideology. In the Sidian speech, they start with the immersive musical education. This is an implicit education that subconsciously shapes the likes and the dislikes and the commitments and the loyalties of the citizens. You can even think of it as how the citizens are socialized rather than how they're educated. So I picture these kids hanging out with each other, making friends, getting a sense of camaraderie with their fellow students and their teachers. Maybe they tour the territory of the city and learn to love the land. Maybe there are public festivals and national anthems and public honors for patriots. Maybe everyone in the city stands whenever a guardian comes into the room. Social life has all kinds of implicit messages about who's your friend and who deserves respect and authority. And over time, they're going to start to notice that there are three basic types of people in the city. There are producers, and they always defer to the soldiers. And all the soldiers and the producers have this deep respect for the guardians. This just seems like the natural order of things. And all of this is happening on a subconscious gut level. The citizens, they're having their emotions and their instinctive commitment shaped, and they're being made to feel patriotic and to respect the political order. And so when there's word of an invasion in the city, they all feel this ardent urge to take up arms and defend the homeland. And they probably feel disgusted by selfish cowards. And when there's some kind of big question facing the city, they'll automatically look to the guardians for wisdom and for guidance. And in general... When people have strong feelings, they want to have reasons for those feelings. They look for explanations and rationalizations. And that is where the noble lie comes in. The myth doesn't cause the feelings and commitments and loyalties. You get those from the socialization, the musical education. The noble lie just pulls all these feelings together and makes sense of them. It gives them a vocabulary to articulate these political sentiments that they already have. Why is King What's-His-Face so wise? Well, it's because he has a golden soul. May it shine in our city forever. And why doesn't this blacksmith laugh at my philosophy jokes? Well, 
That's bronzos for you. Strong arms, thick heads. Once you give them the myth, then you can use it to reinforce and channel their political emotions by talking about them. But the story itself isn't doing the heavy lifting. And so the reason that Socrates is so casual about persuading people to believe this crazy noble lie is because all of the persuasion happens in the education phase. After all that subconscious indoctrination, these citizens are so emotionally primed for the myth that it won't even sound crazy to them. It'll just seem like a natural, common-sense way to understand the world that they've always lived in. They'll believe it, and they'll probably even hold on to it with all the tenacity of their subconscious emotional convictions without questioning how weird it is. And that's because one of the things about ideology is that, from the inside, it's usually invisible. To me, the cutest and cleverest thing about the whole noble lie passage is the very first part of the lie, which is that their education never happened and they were born yesterday. Because this is the most insane, unbelievable part of the story when you take it literally. But when you take it figuratively, it's very true. Because the citizens, they know they were educated. They remember that. But they mostly know the explicit parts, the poems, the songs, the gymnastic exercises. But they probably didn't always notice how all of that was subconsciously shaping their outlook on the world giving them the lenses and the frameworks and the emotional commitments through which they'll interpret everything. And so at the end, they just look at the world and they see things how they see things. They sort people into bronze, silver, and gold automatically. And they forget all the work that went into shaping their vision. And to be honest, I do the same thing. I know on an intellectual level that my outlook on the world has been shaped by my upbringing and education. Sometimes I can even name the book that gave me the framework for seeing things in a certain way. But it still doesn't feel that way when I look at the world. I just see what I see. It's like I'm forgetting I was ever educated. Because ideology is invisible from the inside. But if you're on the outside, like Glaucon's on the outside of the city in speech, then ideologies look crazy and implausible. This is why he thinks that the story is so insane. Now, eventually, we're going to find out that the joke was on Glaucon and that normal Athenian guys get just as much indoctrination and implicit education as the Guardians, but just with a much lower quality. But that's not till book seven. Right now, we're going to get back to the dialogue. Glaucon and Socrates have educated the little soldiers, indoctrinated all the citizens into the patriotic noble lie, and now they're going to very briefly describe the kind of life that the soldiers and guardians will have after they finish their musical education and go on to guard the city. Now that we've educated and armed the citizens, we have to decide how they're going to live. I say we find them the best spot in the city, a place where it's easy to control anyone in town who doesn't want to obey the law, and where they can see any external invaders. They should set up camp there. You mean they'll build their houses there? Yes, but houses for soldiers, not businessmen. What's the difference? The last thing we want to do is to rear dogs that act like wolves and attack the flock. 
which means that we should do everything we can to make sure our auxiliaries are allies to the citizens and don't become their masters. Absolutely. But isn't that why we gave them the best education? Well, I hope we did. I'm not sure. But even that might not be enough. Maybe we should also give them the right kind of houses and property so they won't have any reason to harm the citizens. Yeah, they should get that. Glaucon, tell me if this is how you think they should live. First, nobody owns any private property beyond the necessities. And they should have no private rooms or houses where they could store property. Okay. They'll live on a food stipend from the citizens, and they'll eat all their meals and live in common together. And they won't be allowed any money or jewelry or even to drink from gold or silver cups. We'll tell them that the gold and silver in their souls will become polluted if they touch any real gold or silver. And we'll also tell them that if they ever own any land or houses or money, they'll no longer be guardians. Instead, they'll just be regular householders who are also masters and enemies of the people. And that they'll be rushing towards the destruction of the city. Do you think this is the way of life we should provide for the guardians, Glaucon? It certainly is, Socrates. Nowadays, there's also such thing as tough lifelong education programs. I know lots of people who work through their whole childhood and adolescence in a scramble to get into a big-name university. But usually, the implicit or explicit promise is that if you work hard when you're young, you'll be rewarded. You'll get to finish, and you'll get an easy job that pays you lots of money, and then you can have a nice house and eat in restaurants and go on vacation and pay people to rub your back or whatever you want. But not the guardians. In our world, we study hard to have a nice life. But the auxiliaries and guardians, they study hard to have a hard life. No property, no house, lunch in the cafeteria, forever. Why? The key conceptual contrast in this section is between a house fit for a businessman and a house fit for a soldier. And Glaucon is a little bit confused by this. And that's because in Athens, the soldiers were just the citizens. There were no professional army guys, so there was no special soldier houses. Glaucon, Adamantus, Polemarchus, Socrates, they all served in the armies. And they all lived in their own houses, and with the exception of Socrates, all of their houses were probably really nice. So Glaucon, he's probably listening to this story about the city and speech, and picturing himself as a guardian, living in his own nice house at the top of the Acropolis, guarding the city. But Socrates, he says no. The life of the guardians and the auxiliaries is going to be totally different than the life of an Athenian citizen, because you can't live like a businessman and be a good guardian. There's a fundamental incompatibility between these two ways of life. And that's because as soon as you have your own land and property, as soon as you live like a businessman, you'll have a conflict of interest. Because if you're a money and property guy and a political power guy, then there will always be a temptation to use your political power to expand your wealth at the expense of your fellow citizen. And when that happens, you're no longer a guardian of the city. You're a master of the city. And since you're exploiting the citizens instead of protecting them, you're going to have to start worrying about rebellions. 
the whole point of the education was to avoid that kind of conflict. And that's why a huge part of it was to suppress all the desires and appetites that money could be used to satisfy. Socrates and the boys, they wanted to avoid developing any private interests that might interfere with public interests. And since this potential conflict between private and public never disappears, education can never really end. That's why the soldiers can't have property or land or fancy clothes or travel abroad or even give gifts to their girlfriends. Now, this may all seem like a bad deal to have to spend your whole life in this super strict education only to graduate and have to live on a barracks for the rest of your life. It sounds like a bad deal to Adamantus. In next episode, he is going to stand up for the poor guardians and ask Socrates why he's making them so miserable. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And also, if you know anyone who'd be interested, please share the podcast with them. We'd love to get into your friends' ears. To close this episode, I would like to tie some of the theoretical stuff from this chapter back to some of the context that we learned about in other episodes. Because... If you were listening to this intense education program and weird communistic style of life that the Guardians are made to live, that may have reminded you of a previous episode that we did on Sparta. Because Sparta also had a super strict state-run education program. They had restrictions on music and art and so on. And they were also not supposed to own property. They also lived on a food stipend and ate and lived in common instead of in private houses, at least for the most part. These practices, they weren't in full effect in Sparta, but it was the way it was supposed to be. So the city and speech that Socrates and Glaucon and Adamantus are designing is kind of based on a very idealized version of what Sparta was supposed to be like. Way back in the Apology episodes, you may remember that I was arguing that Socrates may have gotten into trouble with the democratic faction of Athens because he'd been walking around saying oligarchic-sounding talking points that may have upset some people. Consider that when the conversation of the Republic is supposed to have taken place, Athens is in the middle of a 30-year period of war with Sparta. Sparta is the enemy. They're the bad guys. They are trying to destroy Athens. And here Socrates is, recommending that Athenians adopt common meals and no property and other very Spartan policies. Anyone who heard these things would have understood the reference. Now, I stand by my statement that the Republic should not be read as a practical policy guide for Athens. But I can see how a lot of people, hearing this, in the context of a war with Sparta, and then, after two oligarchic coups, may have gotten a little suspicious of Socrates. But then... Socrates wasn't really about making people comfortable. <laughs>